0: Today's interview is one of the most popular from my previous podcast, so I brought it out of the archives for a bit of a reboot to ensure that all of my new listeners are able to hear it as well. And I promise you, this is one of those reboots that's actually good. Now, West Plate is no stranger to adversity. On the surface, it may appear that he is incredibly successful, having founded the software company Automatic Duck, as well as worked for companies such as Adobe and Pinnacle not to mention years of editing commercials and main title sequences for network TV shows. And on top of all that, Wes is currently a product designer for this tiny little tech startup that you may have heard of called Apple. Beyond Wes's professional success is his personal achievements. If you scan through Wes's Facebook or his Instagram profiles at any given time, you're going to see numerous pictures of him holding medals for marathons and ultramarathons. Like, you know, they're no big thing. But the story that you're not going to see on Wes's social media pages or on his website's About page are the years that he lived with obesity, eating garbage, and worst of all, living with alcoholism that not only almost cost him his family, but also his life. In this episode, we discuss how Wes went from a high school athlete to being hospitalized for alcohol abuse in his early 30s to then running his first ultra marathon, which, by the way, is 50 miles with many half marathons in between. His amazing journey will inspire you to find the strength to achieve your own health and wellness goals, regardless of the obstacles in your way. And now, without further ado, my interview with Wes Plate. I am here today with Wes Plate, and if his story today does not inspire you, then I highly advise you to go see your physician and check to make sure that you have a pulse, because Wes's story is pretty amazing. So, Wes, thank you so much for being on the show. It's an honor, Zach. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, So you and I have uh, met a couple of times. We've had lunch together. We've chatted. You were actually in one of my very early test challenge groups for fitness and post. So we've kind of gotten to know a little bit each other more through cyberspace than in real space. Anybody that's been in the post-production industry for more than a few years, you may not have heard of Wes, but I pretty much guarantee that you've probably used a product that he has created called Automatic Duck. So let's just talk a little bit first about kind of who you are, what you do in the industry what your background is and then we'll get to what's so cool about the most recent part of your journey.
1: Sure, I uh, started out as a editor back in the mid 90s. I was editing on Avid and uh I was an offline editor, which was a distinction that was common back then. I think that's less so these days, but I was an Avid offline editor that was frequently doing complex effects jobs that required me to uh, sort of have rough, maybe some rough green screens um, or various things. The, The challenge I often had was that my advertising agency clients would kind of put up a bit of a fit if they saw a really rough chroma key. And I would explain, you know, this is just Avid offline. You know, this is AVR 77 or whatever the video quality was back then. And Avid doesn't key very well. So don't worry, we're going to finish this all in a really expensive room and it's all going to look really good. And they're like, okay, that's fine. But we don't like the chroma key. It looks really bad. So I would very frequently need to take my effects work that I was doing just for my offline cut, send it over to After Effects so that I could get something that looked a lot better and uh, then the agency people would always then buy off on my cut and then it, the work would get redone later on. But I was always tripping over this this roadblock of getting from my Avid into After Effects and yet doing it in an efficient manner because it, was, it wasn't very efficient. It took a long time and a lot of rebuilding from scratch and taking a lot of notes about what I had done. And uh, I got myself a pretty good workflow in the end, but it was still time-consuming. So I had this idea that if there was a plugin for After Effects that could read an Avid OMF file, like it could do, it could, that little piece of magic could do all the work that I had spent hours on. Um, So I went to my dad who at the time was the only programmer I knew. And I said, I've got this idea. I don't know if it's possible, but I think it might be. And this was in like 98, 99 timeframe that I went to him to discuss this idea. And then kind of life got in the way. Very Various things happened. Finally, by the end of 2000, I think it was October of 2000, we really got started on the project in earnest. We created a plugin for After Effects that would read an Avid timeline through this file format called OMF. And then in 2001, NAB, we did our very first uh, trade show and we had a company that we called Automatic Duck. And it was just the start of what became a like a, well, now it's going on 14 years, but a very long journey of us creating tools that helped video editors and other digital artists uh, get their work between different programs that didn't all by themselves talk well to each other. So we were sort of this Switzerland of helping all these different apps that didn't necessarily get along to help them get along in a way that users could work with them. And um, so that was, that's kind of how Automatic Duck happened. It came out of my, use out of my life as an actual video editor um, needing something that didn't exist and
0: uh, we were just sort of at the right place at the right time for that. So clearly nowadays all of the programs that are in the the world of editing and post-production they all talk together perfectly so there's no need for any type of automatic doc translation program would that be correct? God, I wish. (laughs) (laughs) Right? (laughs) Because you you think about what life looked like 15 years ago. We thought it was so complicated. But if you got into a time machine and came to today, you'd be like, are you flipping kidding me with all the formats and the deliverables and the number of cameras and the number of codecs and the number of NLEs? Like everything is just exponentially multiplied. So this is easily one of the largest pain points for so many people, especially those that wear multiple hats. It's not a pain point for me because all I do is cut for 60 hours Week. That's it. I'm in an avid timeline and I edit, but I'm very specialized, and that's now a very unique place to be in this industry. So it seems to me that this is just something that now that you have all this experience for years would be even more useful today rather than less useful.
1: Yeah, I I think you're right. Certainly, there has been some things that have worked. Some of these apps have started to get some better integrations uh, built in. Uh, For example, Premiere Pro has the ability to import an uh, AAF file from an Avid in a much better, more robust way than it used to in the past. And it, uh, that has been a higher priority for Adobe um, lately than it had been. So, I mean, there is there is that kind of improvement in the industry. But at the same time, there's also huge gaps, um, you know, that uh, other NLEs you can't get to, um, well, you know, we we recently came out with a new plugin that went from Final Cut Ten to After Effects because I was starting to use Final Cut Ten, and I had that same sort of stumble. Like, hey, I need to get to After Effects. So uh, that thing didn't exist, and so Automatic Duck has filled that one. But you know, there's every time somebody comes up with a new NLE or a new compositing system or a new digital audio workstation, it, there's always some new gap, and they're all. It's like, uh, yeah, you can't have one standard that seems to work for everybody. It is kind of maddening that, that a company like ours needs to still exist in, in today.
0: You'd think so, right? It's like, can't we all just get along? Like, come on, like there's gotta be an answer, but it just, we complicate things further as opposed to making them simpler. So it's, it's kind of nuts. Um, so I'm, I'm very appreciative that you're able to help fill some of those gaps and have been doing it for, for so long. But obviously the reason that I'm bringing you on today is not so much to talk about technology because there are plenty of other podcasts that do that, but I wanna talk specifically about health and wellness because you have a really inspired story. But what I want to do is start from the beginning. And obviously, based on the conversation that we've had so far, you're somebody that's obviously very much into the technology world, into the post-production world. So tell me, when you started Automatic Duck 15 years ago, what did your life look like from a health perspective?
1: Oh, boy. So I got to set that time machine and go back. You know, I was... So I was a younger man back then. How old was I? I'm not even good at doing math. I can't figure out how old I am right now. Well, anyway, I was somewhere in my mid to late 20s. I can't remember, 27 maybe. You know, the thing I remember most strongly about my health at that time was that I was getting more and more unhealthy while yet somehow being aware of it, at least enough to wish that it wasn't happening while at the same time making decisions and making choices that took me further down the path. You know, I can remember, you know, um, working as an editor, the only way I could possibly take a break without feeling like a real jerk was if I went out to have a cigarette. That seemed like the industry approved, oh, you're going to have a cigarette? Okay, you can take a break then, no big deal. But if it was like, I just need to get out of the room from you crazy client, you know, that was frowned upon. So... Uh, I was smoking cigarettes at the at the post facility. Not a lot, but just enough to get out of the room once in a while. Um, after work, I would go drink w- uh, with my boss and, and the f- other fellow artists. So there was a lot of alcohol involved in my life. I can also remember as Automatic Duck was starting, you know, <laughs> working well late into the night. And then, you know, it's at two o'clock in the morning. My brain is just really going, going, going because we've been thinking so hard all day but I've got all these great ideas and I can't go to sleep. So I would drink myself to sleep. So that was even yet more alcohol on top of everything else. And so I was just starting to get heavier and heavier as I was increasing my caloric intake and uh, just being generally um, not moving around a lot. Now, at the same time, I can remember having some thoughts like, this isn't going in the right direction. Because when I was in high school, I was a track Uh, as a sprinter in track. I also did cross country. I wasn't very good at cross country, but it was something that I did to get me through that season as I got ready for track. I really enjoyed sprinting. So in high school, I was in pretty decent shape. But then once, uh, actually in college, I was in pretty decent shape. But once I turned 21 and I had easy access to going to Costco and buying huge cases of beer, uh, I started to run a lot less and exercise a lot less. And my weight went up. So when I was, you know, then professional, you know, doing all this alcohol in uh, infused lifestyle and, and just generally being not a lot of exercise, I, I wished I was able to do more exercise. And so once in a while I would try to go for a run, try to recapture that spirit of my youth, but it was hard because I was so heavy. And so it just, it wasn't, it was a non-starter so many times because I just couldn't get any momentum and I could just, you know, it just, and it just was just snowballing on itself, just getting worse and worse and worse. And I think it was it in 2007. That's when I think I got to my heaviest point. I was like 240 pounds. I don't think I got to 245, but I know I was definitely over 240. And um, I was just a very big person. And I actually had lost a bunch of weight when I got married in 2000. And well, maybe it was two thousand. So right around the time Adam MacDuck started, um, I actually had lost some weight in pre- just because of the wedding. I didn't want to look awful in the wedding pictures, but then a lot of that went right back on as as soon as as that little diet stopped. So I was definitely in this cycle of just so much bad stuff going in and not enough exercise and and you know good things happening. And uh, But I can also remember really wishing it was different, but it was so hard to get out of that rut.
0: So really what you've done is you've painted a very clear picture that you are somebody that at one point in your life, you had fairly good health when you were younger, then all of a sudden you hit that point where you feel like you're invincible, you're 21, you're 22, you've just gotten out of school, You feel like nothing's gonna change me. I'm on top of the world. I can hit the beer. I can work until three o'clock in the morning. Caffeine is gonna keep me going, whatever it is. And all of a sudden you wake up one day and you're like, how the hell did I get to be 240 pounds? And I think this is a really good lesson for people that are listening because I know that I have a fair amount of listeners that are in our age demographic but there are also a lot of listeners that are younger and I would give anything to have a time machine and go back to when I just graduated school and start hearing stories like these because I've never had an issue with weight. I mean, I've been heavy and I'm actually a little bit heavier now than I would like to be but I've never been over 200 pounds so I've never been obese but my struggle which I've made very public has always been depression and anxiety and I I thought I was bulletproof when I came out of college and it only took two or three years of working in this industry to basically break me down to suicidal depression and not understanding how that happened. So I think hearing your story and where you started and knowing that you weren't just, quote unquote, the fat kid that got picked on. That's a really good thing for people to hear because you started in a good place, went to a really, really bad place, and then came out of that, which we'll go to next. But I think that's a good lesson to take out of this so far is that you went down this path based on choices that you made when you were still relatively young.
1: Yeah, and I think that was always in the back of my mind was this idea that how can I get back to that place where I used to be? And And certainly I had that desire to get back to it. I didn't have the, the ability to overcome my, my dependencies and my addictions at the time. So uh, it was a real struggle and I wasn't able to do it, but eventually I got there.
0: Yeah, and the other thing that I wanna to mention too that I think is, this is one of the things that makes me, literally makes my blood boil when I think about this, is when you said that, well, the only approved break in post-production is the smoke break, and my head just wants to explode, literally. that I can't even emphasize how frustrated that makes me because it's so backwards, where you're just perpetuating the bad health by saying, well, yeah, okay, well, he's on a smoke break, so that's fine, but I feel guilty because I wanna take a 15-minute break to walk around the block, and It's like, well, that's not efficient. You should be in front of your workstation pounding away at the keyboard, Mr. Keyboard Monkey, right? (laughs) Um, I literally felt that way today, right? Like I'm buried in dailies. I'm doing studio network notes on a previous cut. I'm juggling all this stuff. We can't move our calendar because I'm, literally in dailies on a show that's going to air in like a month. And I'm thinking, I need to get out of this room. I'm going to go crazy if I'm stuck in this 12 by 12 dark room for another 10 minutes. But there's this pit in my stomach saying, oh my God, I hope somebody doesn't knock on my door and see that I'm not there at five o'clock in the afternoon. And that mindset just has to change. And the, the fact that you felt the same way, but the solution was, well, as long as I'm smoking then it's okay, right? But that's common. Like, that's not an uncommon way to think.
1: Yeah, it's crazy that that's the way, that that was, yeah, there it was the way then and it is now still that way. It is, it's unbelievable. So yes, keep keep railing against that one.
0: Yeah. And and that's something that I really want to rally everybody that's listening to this show to help me change because I can't do it by myself. But if we have more and more people just kind of say enough is enough. If I want to leave at six o'clock because I'm done, I'm not going to feel guilty about it. If I want to walk away for 15 minutes and get some air and I'm not going to smoke a cigarette, I'm going to be okay with that too. And if one person does it and then another person does it and then another person does it, then guess what? Producers are just going to have to accept the fact that editors need to get out and see sunshine like everybody else in the world. And then they can stop making jokes about how we're all white, <laughs> even That's though funny. we're all very white and pasty, myself included. Um, all right. So the wh- one thing that really struck me about your story, not what you've mentioned so far, but is the way that you and I met and the way that our friendship developed is I didn't know anything about your past being heavier. And I remember you were in the the challenge group with me and we had lunch together and you were just kind of talking about your story and you were kind of struggling with sticking with the fitness stuff, but you're trying to do some more running and do 5K and a 10K. But then you randomly posted a picture on Facebook, and this was maybe six months to a year ago, of your old driver's license. Not to me, just in public and I happened to find it and I just about And I said, oh my God, where in the world did this guy come from? Because it was the picture of you at 240 pounds and I didn't even recognize you. So that was when the light switch kind of went on in my head where I said, all right, this guy's figured something out and I wanna know what it is that was going on in his head that got him to where he is today, meaning a year ago. And now where you are tonight as opposed to where you were then is another completely different journey. Tobo. That's T O P O. So let's go back to where you were at 240 pounds. You were drinking and you were smoking and literally drinking yourself to sleep and working until two, three o'clock in the morning, not able to slow your brain down. What was the turning point? What was the psychological trigger that made you say something's got to change? Because there was obviously the nagging thoughts of like, oh, I know I can do better. I know I should exercise. But whenever I speak to people or I read books about people's journeys, there's always a specific trigger or event. So was there one for you where all of a sudden it was like, all right, this is it. I've got to change.
1: Yeah, unfortunately, there was a bit of a dramatic uh, evening that, that, unfortunately, I can't. I don't even remember. But uh, what I can, what I do know about it is that it was, I believe, it was the day after Christmas, or maybe it was Christmas, uh, two thousand and seven. And by this time in my life, the, the drinking thing had been significant and, prof- and like professionally on, like I was hardcore. Uh, for quite some time and it was matching up perfectly with problems in my marriage and so any frustrations that I happened to have with my wife uh, they were they were so much easier for me to elaborate upon when I was really drunk and so I would get drunk I'd get angry and uh, she would get the brunt of it and so one night I, like again it was either I think it was the 26th of December of 2007 I got myself into an amazing state. Uh, she found me. This is for what she told me. I was on the back deck, screaming at the barbecue. Something about the band was in the barbecue, and I needed to do something. Uh, from there, uh, my anger went into the the kitchen, where I kicked and did something to the refrigerator. So, it, which actually caused it to break. We had to buy a refrigerator. I was in. I was like just not myself. Um, I was really just totally out there and and just out of control. She was scared. And so the, the next thing that the thing that I'm aware of is actually the next morning waking up at my parents' house. So my wife had called my dad to say, you know, you got to come get him. Uh, he's he's out of control and I'm scared. My dad came and got me. Um I uh was driven to his house where I woke up the next morning. Now this You know, in the way that we're telling this tale tonight, you know, this is kind of a a big dramatic thing that maybe seems to come out of nowhere. But there have been, as you might imagine, a lot of things that sort of hinted that this was coming. There were company Christmas parties where I would get completely wasted on, you know, my eight martini or eight vodka martinis or whatever crazy things I was drinking. And, um, you know, sometimes I would be found throwing up in the bathroom. And so there there, there was definitely an escalation. And so this particular night, uh, it just, it had just gotten out of control. So, um uh, the next day we sat down as a family, I was, I kind of realized that I had finally really, uh, screwed up big time. And, uh, So we had a big sit down as a family and I told them, I am going to go to to rehab. I understand that this is out of control. I need help. I can't stop. And so I made an appointment to go to a treatment facility in the Seattle area. And actually uh, the very next day, the, the 27th of December is when I checked in. So I was almost forced by circumstance to get myself checked into a rehabilitation hospital, although it was something that I had seen coming for a while. I actually have memories of like driving at night and listening to the radio. And there'd be these commercials for this one facility that'd come on the radio. And I always felt like the the advertisement guy was talking to me. Like he's not just talking to the world in general. He's saying, (laughs) Wes, you have a drinking problem. You need to come here. You need to get help. And so I would, I would just get so mad at those ads. And, uh, various things like that, Just, I just always knew this was coming. So uh, when it finally did happen, I, I made this appointment. So um, the facility that I went to is a bit uh, – well, it's well-known in the Seattle area, and it's not a 12-step program. It's uh, a 10-day, very intensive program that features this sort of um, – it's a, a situ- it's a system where they, they basically fill you with alcohol – Make you really, really sick, and uh, to the point where you're just, you know, getting sick all over the place. Um, and then they use that uh, that very sick feeling as an aversion, so that they, so that you do not want. To partic-
0: participate in any alcohol anymore. So Actually, yeah, so that's basically that's aversion therapy. Aversion therapy, also yeah, known as the- Clockwork Orange therapy.
1: Yeah. So where they
0: they literally tape your eyes open and make you look at people killing each other. Is that that's basically how it works, right? The way it does in the movies. <laughs> pretty much exactly like that.
1: I it was a, it's a ten day program, and I knew at the very beginning that by the end of day ten I wouldn't remember day one because I just I just knew that it was going to be a pretty intense thing. So. Um, I started to take notes at the very beginning and I started writing a blog about the experience that was originally just going to be just for me so I could remember. Uh, A few days in, I decided that my dad would would probably like to hear what's happening to me inside this hospital, so I shared the link with him. And then towards towards later in the stay, I even realized that other patients would probably like to hear some of the stuff that I'm experiencing and writing about. So uh, the blog became increasingly public and... You know, today it, it, I don't hide it from anybody. It's it's, it's out there, and uh, it's been seven something years. The whole journey through this this treatment thing was just you know quite dramatic. Um, we don't need to dwell on all the details of, of of how that worked there, but I got out of the hospital. Uh, you know, ten days later, or maybe there's a there was a couple of days of detox in there. So anyway, a couple weeks later, let's just say I got out. I'm I'm more, I'm lucky to say that their system worked very well for me. They claim a pretty high uh, success rate. And I'm one of the people who it has worked well for. I know that um, before I went into treatment, back when drinking was my most important thing in my life, um, I would often drink, let's like on the way home from somewhere I was driving to, or I would even get off work and be like, you know, I'm not ready to go deal with home life yet. I think I'll go drive around for a couple of hours. But of course, that meant driving around with some beers for a couple of hours. So I, I had. I had this whole drinking and driving thing down and, uh, it was, it was something that it wasn't even a question to me of like, is this safe or is it legal? That wasn't, doesn't even matter. It was just something that I did. It was just ingrained in me, but I, that kind of came into focus as I left the hospital because I was driving home and I stopped at a seven 11 to get something to drink. And, uh, I walked in, I went to the water section, bought myself a bottle of water, walked out, paid and left. And as I got into my car, I realized, whoa, I didn't even look at the beer section. Like it didn't even occur to me, and that was that was a major step in my in my life because I was I was a changed person from what I had been just a couple of weeks before that. But that that marked the beginning of a new phase in my life. And uh, as we said, I was pretty heavy when I went into the hospital. Um, I don't remember how much weight I lost during it. Uh, I'm sure there must have been some, but. Uh, i I pretty quickly started to track my weight uh, i 'm not sure when but it, somewhere in my life during this time i 'm pretty sure it happened before I went to the hospital I had started tracking my weight as a means to try to lose it i can I think about that sometimes when I think about you because I know that in the fitness and post challenge group that was a the bit, one of the big things that we started off was with well, hey let 's just let 's measure what 's happening in our lives and so I was measuring myself and and tracking on a website that I believe is now defunct, but it was called Science Diet back then. It was created a graph automatically, which to me was magic, so that if you were doing well with your your eating and your weight, you could watch this graph dive. But I I was tracking things back then. So when I got out of the hospital, I was well in a position to be tracking my weight. So I'm out of the hospital. I'm no longer drinking alcohol, um, and I don't even want to, thankfully. But I, I do remember having a severe need for something sweet, some sugar, uh, because I had I had taken a whole bunch of of sugars out of my diet, um, like really quickly, and so back then I was drink I was eating a a Ben and Jerry's pint of ice cream every single night, and yet I was still losing weight, and my chart was showing it. And eventually, I uh, the ice cream slowed down, but uh, within. I, I don't remember exactly now, but was because I can't access science diet anymore. But within like six months, I had lost like 40 pounds. Maybe it was a little bit longer, but I fairly quickly dropped 40 pounds from the 240 that I had been at my heaviest. And that was primarily just from reducing my intake by no longer drinking so much alcohol or not drinking any alcohol. So the alcohol was such a huge, uh, enormous injection of calories that once I took that out, I just naturally just lost tons and tons of weight. And I wasn't doing any exercise, or maybe I was doing some, but it wasn't of any of anything worth talking about now. But it was just that reduction in intake that made such a huge difference. So that, you know, years later, you know, I think it was 2011. I can remember it was when I actually got myself a Wi-Fi enable scale that made it much easier to do all this stuff. I was, you know, I was in a much better position. Uh, as I, I was much, much, much lighter, that's kind of the major first thing for me, and a, a huge amount of weight loss uh, just came from making that first step towards getting healthy, which for me was the very important thing to stop to stop drinking.
0: Well, the the most exciting thing about this conversation is that you and I are going to be billionaires because we've just discovered the best diet program ever, which is eat a pint of Ben and Jerry's every <laughs> night for six months and lose forty pounds. We're going to make millions of dollars off of this program. What can go wrong? Right? I mean, what? But really, what what that shows? All kidding aside, is just the amazing impact that drinking alcohol regularly can have just on your weight there's so many other things that it can affect and snowball as far as cognitive function and obviously the drinking and the driving is just that like that can just spiral way out of control and ruin your life and ruin other people's lives but just narrowing it down just a pure caloric intake and the immense effect that it had on your body to the point where you were eating a pint of ice cream every night and still losing 40 pounds if that doesn't give a wake-up call at least to a few people I just I don't know what will because that to me is just profound I think at the time it kind of blew my mind like wh- what what secret magic have I discovered
1: this is not this should not happen this way but at the same time at the time I wasn't really questioning it it was kind of one of these things where I like hey I feel like I need a pint of ice cream tonight I'm going to grant myself that because it's a lot healthier than the alternative that I was doing a couple of months ago so let's just work through this and then eventually I'll get to the point where I don't need that ice cream every night and uh Yeah, in fact, I still love Ben and Jerry's ice cream, don't get me wrong, but but I cannot
0: eat a whole pint now. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Even if I
1: wanted to, I couldn't do it.
0: So you you basically went through your own version of aversion therapy basically with the with the Ben and Jerry's but um, what I do want to point out which you 've already kind of pointed out is just the importance of quantification and yes this is was the cornerstone of the challenge groups that I was running and for the courses that I 'm building now which will be m- much more self sufficient and be able to, to last longer and have a longer shelf life than the challenge groups the biggest thing that I would always say is what you measure you can improve upon. Because if you don't have a baseline you don't, and you don't have an understanding of what you're doing now, you have no idea how to make changes that will positively affect it. And like you said, one of the the things you pointed out that I think was so profound and most people may not pick up on it is that part of the reason that you are motivated to lose the weight is because you like watching the little bar graph or the little graph go down, right? right. It's a really, really simple thing, but that's called a habit loop where the cue is you weigh yourself, The you, know, you, you see the line go down, and then that's the reward. So now you're going to continue doing the routines, whether it be the exercise, the changing of the eating habits, whatever it is, that's the routine that you put into the habit loop. And then your reward is, oh, cool, my graph is going down, right? It's really, really small. And it's not the kind of thing that anybody would think would lead to lasting change. But having that quantification can literally be the difference between not going anywhere or making. Profound changes in your life. And even the ice cream, again, is you're not eliminating. The, the habit out of your life of doing, you know, like you were doing the drinking before. So something would cue you to say, I need to take a drink, the routine would be the drink, and then the reward would be, you feel the release of anxiety, you feel less pressure, you can deal with your family, you can deal with work stress. And you kept the habit loop, but you changed the routine. And instead of doing the alcohol, you did the ice cream. And obviously now you've eradicated that. My guess is there might still be something that's in that place, but it's obviously immensely healthier. And that's kind of where I want to go to next because I really believe that when you dissect this journey, and this is not a journey that you and I had even talked about, so I had no level of preparation whatsoever. I frankly didn't even know most of this, so I'm even more impressed than I was an hour ago when we started. I think now you still have a very, very similar habit loop. But now the alcohol that became the ice cream has now become athletics and you've kind of gone back to where everything started in high school. So now I want to jump to a couple of days ago and then I want to fill the gap between right after you got out of rehab to how you got where you are now. But let's tell the audience, what was it that you just finished doing a couple of days ago? Yeah, on Saturday,
1: October 3rd, uh, I completed my first ultra marathon and ran a 50 kilometer race uh, up north of Seattle called the Baker Lake 50k and uh, I finished it and it wasn't easy. My time was six hours and thirteen minutes, which for my first 50 K is, is not terrible and um, it was a remarkable thing I, I can't believe I can actually say to you and to the, your audience like I am now an ultra marathon runner.
0: Yeah, so for anybody that's listening right now thinking, eh, I just don't know if I can get up and exercise or do this and that, it's too hard. Like, your excuse is no longer valid. Like, seriously, this guy was practically rolled into rehab 240 pounds, and you just ran a 50K in six hours. Like, that's astounding. So I, I really wanted to bring that up to people that really feel like, oh, I just can't do it, or it's too much, or it's too overwhelming. If I would said to you in 2007, a week after you got out of rehab, hey, Wes, I want you to run a 50K, what would your response have been?
1: <laughs> well, my first response would have been the same one that everyone else says to me, which is, how long is 50K? And then somebody
0: would have said, oh, it's 31.1 miles.
1: <laughs> and then I would have said, you're crazy
0: yeah exactly so that's that's what people do when they look at these goals they say I'm 240 pounds and there's this guy that was on this podcast he just ran a 50k but that's not me I can't do that But what I'm trying to help people understand is that you absolutely can do it, but you have to break your goal into much smaller pieces, right? And this all comes from the go far framework that I have learned through the the documentary film that I worked on called go far and through the program itself. But step one, when you create a goal is that you have to take your ultimate goal and break it down into a series of much smaller ones. So let's go back to this point where you no longer were drinking alcohol. And you said, I want to start moving forwards. go through some of the baby steps, some of the changes that got you from that point to being able to run a 50K.
1: Yeah. So, um, so we've already talked about how I got down to about 200 pounds. Um, in 2011, I, um, had, let's see. So I started losing more weight in 2011 and in the beginning of two, so right around that time, beginning of 2012, I started to I was now down to like, I can't remember. I could could probably check on a graph somewhere. But I was now down to like 180, around in there. I had lost some more weight. And uh, I was starting to get interested in exercising because I could tell that my body movements were easier to accomplish. It was just easier to move. And so um, I started just doing some some simple jogging. Uh, By early 2012, I... I was working at Adobe Systems. And so Automac Duck had licensed some technology to Adobe. I went to go work for them. And uh, a very good friend of mine, who I've been friends with since the mid 90s, he also works at Adobe. He uh, showed me his, actually, I think what I, how did he show it to me? I have to go back in time. He, I had seen a GPS track like on Facebook or something, of a jog he had done. And I thought, oh, that's pretty cool. I like seeing where he ran on a map and GPS. And Zach, you've already mentioned I'm a technology guy. So I kind of got interested in this shiny object that he's talking about in this GPS thing. So I said, how did you do that? So he told me about his Garmin GPS watch and uh, that he had then uploaded the GPS information to this website called Strava, which is a, it's like a social network for exercising, running, and biking. And I was like, to me, that was very interesting. And just this, this technological piece of, of tracking the run in a, in a way that to me was really beautiful and seeing it on the map was intriguing. And so I decided that for If nothing else, this is going to be a carrot that I can hold out in front of me as I run. This is going to be the little thing that's going to motivate me because I like these kinds of technological um, solutions and and ways to make, make my life more interesting. So I bought myself a, a Garmin watch and I started to do a little bit of running and it was all very, very low key. I mean, I think I was running maybe a mile, maybe two. Um, I can remember this one one, two miles stretch that I would, or it's one mile out, and one mile back that I would, you know, run to a telephone pole and then walk two telephone poles and then walk, tele- then run to the next telephone pole and then walk a little bit more. So I started off just barely running at all. And then over time increased it and increased it. But this, this whole idea of tracking it made it so interesting to me and gave me just so much more motivation. And it was a real slow thing. I mean, I, I didn't have much in the way of goals except that I just wanted to get, I wanted to be able to run and have it not hurt and I wanted it to actually be fun. And so I was just kind of going slowly adding, adding miles over months. Um, I mean, this is, it was such a slow progression that I was running just five Ks, which is three miles and feeling like feeling really, really good about that accomplishment and not necessarily looking too much beyond that. Um, and i was i had worked my way up to in the summer of 2014 i had worked my way up to running like 5 miles and i was feeling i was like king of the world that i could run 5 miles i couldn't believe the achievement that that was um, and then one day i was i happened to be traveling in portland oregon and i went for a 5 mile run but i i don't know if i was too ambitious about a turn that i took or if i took a wrong turn but i ended up running a 7 mile loop and uh, I did it successfully and I didn't feel really that bad, but I, I posted the, the link to the Strava GPS track of that run uh, to Facebook. And a very good friend of mine saw that in September of 2014. And she said, hey, if you can run seven miles, you can run a half marathon. And I've got a half marathon coming up in November. Maybe you can run it with me. And, you know, kind of thinking back to it now, I, uh, my memory was that I kind of jumped on it like, yes, I need that kind of motivation. Now, I probably I had to have been scared because I mean, seven miles was a long way for me to go and to tack on six more miles to go 13 for a half marathon that in retrospect, that seems kind of crazy. Um, but I took the motivation and, uh, started to train specifically with a goal in mind. So up until that point, I had just been sort of running, just going two, three miles, four miles, five miles, just kind of whatever felt right. But, uh, starting with that, that email conversation with my friend that set me on a, a clear path. So I found a, uh, Let's say I went to HalHigdon.com, which is a very popular site for uh, marathon and half marathon training plans. Printed out a plan to get me to a half marathon by whatever date it was in November of 2014. Worked my way to the point where I flew down to Berkeley with my friend and and ran the Berkeley half marathon in no, last November. Which crap, that wasn't even a year ago. Um, so and that was. That was an amazing experience, actually. Um, it wasn't super successful. Um, I didn't know anything about proper nutrition. I didn't know anything about hydration. And so, and so I went, I got up that morning. I did not eat any breakfast. I ran the race, did not fuel uh, during the race with any of the various caloric things that they have now the gels and the goose. I didn't eat any of that. I had a little bit of water at the various water stations, but not a lot. And so needless to say, at mile 11, um, I just totally hit a wall and ran out of energy. And I also had been, of course, it was a race environment. So I, I had run too quickly the first part of the race. But um, it, was a, it was a neat learning experience. I mean, I still managed to finish. It was very difficult to get those last two miles in. Afterwards, I can remember I was crying. Just I was just so full of emotion. Like, I can't believe I just ran a half marathon. I can't believe it. Just a couple of months ago, I ran seven miles. I thought that was the furthest I could ever go. Uh, it was pretty – it was a really special experience, but it was also a learning experience because I knew that I could have done better if I would have known more about how to properly give my body the fuel that it needed. And so um, – Let's see, actually, you know, that was right around the same time as we had completed your fitness and post um,
0: challenge group. Which, by the way, I didn't even mention, but I, as you were recalling the story, it all came back to me. You won that challenge group. Um, and now I know how you did it because it was based largely on activity and, you know, sticking with specific goals. And now I can see how you got so many steps and so much activity because you were running half marathons. I have spent almost 10 years now raving about how much I love my topo mat and I have finally discovered what I now consider the topo mat of desk chairs, the Core 360. The Core360, spelled Q-O-R, is designed to keep me constantly moving while seated in an upright and balanced position. To learn more about how it works, let's hear from Core360 founder, Dr. Turner Osler, about why he created the Core360 Active Sitting Chair. When you sit badly, you sit badly for many hours a day. And that's really what the problem is. It's very hard to make yourself get up and do jumping jacks every half hour. But if you just swap to a chair that requires you to be muscularly engaged in order not to fall off. It's an easy bar to clear. For the procrastinators out there who hear all of the statistics and know how bad sitting is and it's the new smoking and they're thinking, that's something I'll worry about in a few decades, you're gonna feel the effects of having more energy at two o'clock in the afternoon or four o'clock in the afternoon that day. And that's the whole point. Your core muscles will be stronger. You'll have less back pain. All of this will make you more available for the rest of the pursuits of your life, your kids, your hobbies, your whatever. For the for those of us who need to practically live in front of computers to do our best creative work, the Core 360 is going to level up your game, keep your body moving, and keep the creativity flowing. To learn more and purchase what I consider to be the top of desk chairs, please go to optimizeyourself.me/slash core360. That's optimizeyourself.me/slash QOR360.
1: Well, I was, yeah, I was training for that half marathon and then, so it was, yeah, it was just a remarkable experience, but it it, it taught me that, hey, you know, that not, not only was that fun, but I could do better if I learned and did things right. I also, uh, the challenge experience, the challenge group experience, um, the thing I remember telling you that uh, it was the most useful thing for that to me or that I took away from it so immediately was a a sense of confidence because I didn't really have any confidence going into your group about my fitness level, like how I stacked up against others or, you know, where did I fit? Uh, but through your challenge group, I got this confidence that, wow, you know, I, I am fit. I can, I can stand up against other people who are also fit. I don't have to be scared of people who know what they're doing. So, uh, last, so right after that half marathon, and with the with the confidence of your, your class, I joined a, a fitness group here in town uh, that does like a morning 5 a.m. boot camp thing. And that was great because I started to meet new people. Um, I met some people there who liked running and who also liked trail running, which is also something that I had expressed interest in. I didn't know much about. But they were like, oh, you like trail running? Come running with us. So I started running some trails with some people. And so I think it was by was it December? I can't, I don't know the dates anymore, but uh, it wasn't too long after that I ran my first half marathon on a trail, which is a completely different experience than running a road half marathon. Um, and then I think it was within then six months, I did three more half marathons. So by July of 2015, I had gotten four, no, I'm sorry, five half marathons under my belt, three of them on the trail, two of them on the road, And it was just feeling (laughs) like really, really just good. Uh, I was feeling confident and proud of myself and and excited about what I was experiencing and yet constantly being challenged to do more. And so um, along the way, I had my, you know, all these new people who I'm hanging out with. They are not only running half marathons, but they're running marathons. I have some friends that uh, in November, they do back-to-back marathons where they do one Seattle marathon on Saturday, then on the very next day they do another Seattle marathon. In July, a bunch of these friends they ran a 50-mile race, and uh, I was just so inspired. and I wanted to do that too. So that's when I, sometime uh, over the summer, I can't remember exactly when, but I had finally committed and put down my money for this Baker Lake 50K, which just happened. And so then I started to train specifically for that. Again, using some sort of plan, not trying to go 31 miles all at once, but just taking it easy. And, you know, one day it's two miles and then four miles and then six miles. And then on the weekend I have to do a long eight mile run. Now, you know, of course I'm to the point where a half marathon is, is something that I'm used to. So those, those numbers didn't scare me, but I did have to eventually build that up and build that up. So yeah, you make the comment that anybody can do it. And it's true, but you do have to sort of take it, like you say, and you have to break down the goal. So it was really helpful for me, and i felt I found that by having a plan and and sticking to some sort of schedule that it was it was easy to add those miles on. it's still these these sorts of distances are not easy. Um, my experience on Saturday at the race was the first. The first half, the first 15 miles, was, uh, was it felt really good. I was running with this guy who he and I have trained together a bunch. And um, we we're running probably a little bit faster than we should have, but it just felt so good. We were running with other people. And one of the things that's really fun about a trail run is that, at least in my experience, they tend to be more social than road races. So, you know, we're talking to the to the girls who are running up ahead of us and talking to the people behind us. And, uh, we're just, you know, we're just talking and running. But when I got to the aid station at mile 15, I stopped to, to, I wanted to change my shirt. Uh, I wanted to change my socks and I ended up changing my shoes just because why not? And, uh, got some food in me and some, some stuff, but my legs started to cramp up, which was a new experience. I hadn't had that before, but then unfortunately the whole second half of the race, the, the last 15 miles, my legs just were cramping and hurting so bad. And um, and then it just became sort of, it was just a mental thing to just push past it, to keep going. Part Part of it was, I thought to myself, well, on Tuesday night, I'm talking to Zach and I can go on the podcast and tell them that I finished the race, or I can go on the podcast and told, tell them that I didn't finish. So I'm going to keep on going. <laughs> so this conversation we're having right now was definitely a motivating factor.
0: Well, I'm, I'm glad that I could be a, a contributor to, to giving you that level of accountability and making you that much more miserable. Yeah, um, but it's, so that's it's, the story. Bit, well, it's, it, and it's it's a really, really inspiring story. And I think that one of the things that it certainly brings up that I think is a mental barrier for so many people, especially when they're in the place right now where you were seven, eight years ago, is saying, well, my body's just not capable of these things. And what people really need to understand, and it's it's one thing to, to know the information and see the science, and it's another to have to experience it, but your body is capable of a 100 times more than you think that it is. What's stopping you from doing the things that you think you can't do is your mind. It's all mental. And in your mind, you were thinking, well, I'm at mile 15 and I'm only halfway done and I'm already in pain and I'm already cramping and you're thinking, well, my body just can't do it. Like my legs can't do it. My legs hurt. I can't deal with the pain. But once you kind of dialed into the mental side of it, you were able to get through. And I'm guessing my assumption would be that as soon as you hit mile 31 and as soon as you hit the finish line, that was it. Your body just gave out and was done and said, I can't do another 10th of a mile. Would that be a fairly accurate assessment?
1: It was pretty close to that. I got I actually have I was surprised at the finish line by my parents, which was a really nice special thing for someone to be there for me. My dad shot some video of me coming across the finish line and I was looking at it and I looked strong. I mean, I was coming in quick. I was pushing it. I came into the finish and then, you know, I can remember then when they came over to greet me and I'm like talking to people that I could then barely stand. And so I actually went and found a place to sit down and my legs were shaking and I was shaking And it was, I, I later did try to get up and move around a little bit, but I was moving so slow. Yeah. My body at after mile 31, when I crossed that finish line, it was like, yeah, we're going to stop now.
0: And the amazing thing is that it really wasn't, I mean, yes, it was your body and your body was tired, but if you had said, well, I know that it's 36 miles, your body would have gone to 36.1 miles and it would have collapsed. If oh, you were yeah. doing a double marathon, you would have gotten to whatever it is, 52 point, whatever, 54, whatever the number is, I'm not good at math, that's why I'm an editor. Um, but whatever that number is, you would have gotten to that point and then you would have collapsed. So really is so much more mental than it is physical. Absolutely, because um, you, you had that,
1: that in your head this is the finish line so I can be done now.
0: Exactly, so that that's really what I wanna get to is that it's all about you telling yourself what the finish line is and it being so much a mental game where if you're saying my finish line, and this is the, the more common mentality and just kind of the, the fitness space or the exercise space, just the common societal mentality is, well, in 90 days, my waist has to be at this size and I wanna lose this many pounds and I wanna see this on the scale. But if they're not getting immediate results and rewards, it's like, well, I can never do that. That it's just, I'm not capable of it, right? There's just something about me that's different and I'm just failing and I can't get there, but it's all about finding the mental barriers that you need to get over. And you knew that I had to get to 31 miles and your body, you could have done double, right? With the shape that you're in, you could have done double the mileage, but your mile said, at 31, I'm done. So your body collapsed and it was finished, right? But it's all about the mental barrier. And I think that the other thing that I really want to get into. And I know that we're we're getting close to the end, but if the show goes long, I'm totally fine with that. But I think that the other component of this that I really want to dial into is we've talked about how you got to this place because you had a specific goal and it was based on accountability. Because up until you started getting into the half marathons, you were just kind of dabbling and saying, oh, I'm starting to feel better. My body's starting to feel like it's moving easier. I'm enjoying this, right? I like the carrot of seeing the the graphs and the little things of me running around town. But it was the accountability factor that got you to take it to the next level. So that's one of the major components of trying to find lifestyle changes that fit as opposed to I'm going to do this crash course diet or exercise program. It's finding that long-term thing that's going to make it stick. But the thing that does that is the accountability. But the other component that I want to talk about a little bit and really drill down even deeper is that if you don't have a why, you're not going to stick to it either. And if your why is you want a thinner waistline and you want the number on the scale to be down, there's a 96% chance that you're going to fail. But your why, I'm guessing, was much different based on your past experience. So when you started dabbling or you started to push into these races, what is the deeper why where you woke up and said, this is why I'm choosing to do this today?
1: Oh, well, I'm not, I haven't really thought about that, Zach. Um, Well, I can, you know, early on, my why was the waistline. You know I, I had I had lost a bunch of weight. I wanted to lose more. I can remember sort of starving myself um, and watching the, the, the scale recording dip down, you know, watching the graph go down and feeling really good about that. It's like, Oh, I may not have eaten today, but I lost weight. And that's even more important. And I know, you know, I realize now that that's not healthy, but at the time I was thinking that way. And of course the downside to that was that anytime that I would eat my, my weight would then go back up a few pounds and I would feel terrible about myself. Um, since I've been so much more active and had this, much more proactive plan for just overall health, you know, my weight kind of fluctuates, but at the same time, it it's generally in the same, like within the five pounds of of itself, just because I'm just, I just find I'm so much more healthy and I'm eating healthier, everything about that, what I'm trying to do. I'm not even necessarily having to try to want it. I want to be healthy. It's, somehow it's just my brain is just as something else different switches on or something. But I think that once once I had decided I wanted to do these longer runs, um, I just I really felt a compulsion that I needed to do it. And and I don't know that I can explain it in any way that makes more sense than just I I felt a drive. And the more I looked into the racing, and these you know very long runs, it just felt like, oh, that's the thing that I need to do. Like it just felt so comfortable. Uh, And so I just sort of continued on the path to, to seeking that because it felt I was being drawn towards it.
0: Well, let me try and drill down even one level deeper, and I might be putting words into your mouth, and if I am, you can stop me and say that I'm totally wrong, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and drill down one level even deeper, because this is really one of the core components of what I try to do in the challenge groups, and what I'm really going to be doing in the courses that I'm going to create for people in the industry to instill these habits is you talk back to your your story that you had in 2007 where it was the it was christmas or it was the day after christmas and you you know scared your wife and you scared your family but one component that you haven't talked about yet at all that i know exists in your life is that you have a daughter
1: yes yeah, that's right i do
0: so i'm guessing and again if i'm putting words in your mouth you can stop me but i'm guessing that after having been through that in 2007 and seeing the person that you were There's a component of this that is, I have to be a responsible father and I have to be a role model. And you may not have sat down and said, All right, I'm going to plan out the next seven years of my life. And one of my goals is that I would like to be a more responsible father and a better role model to my daughter. Right. But I'm guessing that that is one of the strongest and, you know, a very driving force in the decisions that you're making, even if you haven't consciously made it. Because I would guess that there's a part of you that's saying, well, whatever it was that happened in 2007, I don't want anybody in my family, especially my daughter, to ever go through that again.
1: Yeah, she is a, a major source of inspiration for me now. And you're right, I do so much. or When I do these things today, part of it is so that I can show her through example what uh, is possible you know, physically fitness-wise, or setting your mind to something, having a goal. Um, I want her to see a healthy lifestyle that is not only not only healthy, and and that's a reward, but it is also fun outside of the the health rewards of it. And um, you know, just because I know that so many times people, you know, they like to uh, poo-poo health things as oh well that's that's not very fun well actually it can be <laughs> a lot of fun um and so yeah I want her to see I wanted her to see all the good stuff that I'm getting out of it and I want to inspire her and yeah I'd never want her to have to go through the pain that that I had to go through in the past so I'm, hopefully my having lived that can uh hopefully shy her away from it but, yeah I want I want to create for her or I want to show her a better
0: way yeah and I think that it's so important for people to be willing to really sit down and ask themselves those harder questions and that was, that's one of the things that really got me to the point where I am and where I continue to go is I stopped thinking about the short-term gains and, ooh, I want this or, ooh, I want that. It was, what is my really, really deep why? And this is something that I learned about partly from a lot of psychological study and research that I've done, but also from Tony Horton, who everybody thinks is just the crazy fitness guy that does P90X and does all the goofy jokes and whatnot. Um, but he's, he's a brilliant man and he really knows what he's doing. He just does it in a very fun, lighthearted a digestible form, which I think to his detriment makes it harder for some people to take him seriously, which I think is, it's unfortunate for him in that sense, but he's also immensely successful with these programs. But When you really start to talk to the guy or you read his book, you realize that he goes much, much deeper into the psychology of why people are successful or not successful with their exercise programs, with their diets, with their lifestyle changes. And it's not because of the choice of the diet. It's not because of the amount of calories they eat. It's not because they do a certain number of jumping jacks. It's because they find their purpose. They find their why. And once you can establish that, everything else starts to click into place. Um, And I I had given this example, I think just on the previous show or the one before that, Um, but I've become a morning person. I've never been a morning person my entire life, Um, but I now wake up pretty regularly around 5.30 a.m. with or without an alarm clock, feel great, wake up, do exercise, get tons of stuff done even before my daughter wakes up and my day starts but the thing that got me to do it after not being a morning person my whole life was saying I want to be able to wake up and I want to be able to give my son a hug before my wife takes him to school that was it so anytime that I feel like I'm going to sleep in or like oh god I'm so tired I just want to hit this news button I think to myself my son is not going to be five years old for that much longer And when he wakes up in the morning, I want to be there to give him a hug to say goodbye. And that's it. But it's such a powerful motivator. And I think it's important for anybody listening saying, well, I just don't know where to get started. I don't know what program to choose. I don't want to do a diet. Don't worry about any of that. Just find your why, find your purpose. And then all of a sudden your decisions will start to be shaped by that subconscious why that you're starting to put into your brain. So if people are listening saying, oh my God, where he was in 2007, that's kind of where I am now, but how in the world am I going to run a 50 K race? Start with your why, just find your reason to get started and then things will start to fall into place. And I think it's great that we got to be able to kind of drill down and do it and even help you discover what that why was that maybe you weren't even consciously thinking about, but there's no question in my mind and hopefully not in yours either that a lot of your why had nothing to do with scales or graphs or races or anything else.
1: Yeah. And it's, it's, in, uh my daughter is 12 years old now she's um, in seventh grade and she's in this accelerated growing up program where she wants to be 21 tomorrow and uh, so you know I'm I'm conscious of how every moment I'm with her is a moment that I'm never gonna have again and it's so and it's just going by so fast. So first of all, I'm jealous of your five-year-old. That's such a wonderful age, and you have time still. Um, but I, you know, even my daughter, we, you know, we still have time left together. It's just, it's happening so fast. So anything that I can do to to be there for her and to create a situation where we are happy and and she's growing up healthy, and I can motivate her and inspire her as her father, you know, that's the life that I want.
0: Yeah, exactly. And like another perfect example. Um, of how one can apply this to just an everyday thing. Like, for example, I recently sent out a survey to everybody on my mailing list and online that's interested in fitness and post. And I said, what's your greatest challenge working in post-production and trying to stay healthy? And one of the more unanimous responses was, how the heck do I stop snacking? Like, all the food they provide is such crap and there's junk everywhere and everybody's having Red Bull and, you know, soda and M&Ms, like, I don't know how to stop. What's the trick, right? And everybody thinks, that it's some specific diet program or it's deprivation or it's willpower. My why, the reason that I don't have chips all day long or I don't have a candy bar or whatever it is, is because when I do and I get home, I'm cranky with my kids and I'm impatient with them and my blood sugar has plummeted and I don't treat them nicely and they don't deserve that. They're kids. They're three and they're five and they don't deserve to be treated the way that I can get when I eat crap and I'm really exhausted and I'm just at the end of my rope and what gets me there faster than anything is eating junk. So I'm not using... Willpower. I'm not saying, oh, I really want the cookie, but I just can't eat the cookie. I'm saying, all right, I want the cookie, but let's think about in my mind in a few hours, what are the consequences of that? I'm going to eat the cookie. I'm going to go home. I'm going to see my kids and I'm not going to be a good dad. That makes it so much easier to not grab that cookie just because I've created the why and it's not using some crazy technology. It's not using deprivation diets. It's just finding the why and that's what drives so many of my decisions. So that's really what I want people to take away from your story. And there are so many things they can take away from your story, but I think the part of it is just establishing the bigger reason why you want to make the changes that you do and that's going to drive all of the tiny habits and decisions that you make all day long.
1: Yeah. Well, it's, I, I'm so blessed to be able to, um, have gone through the journey that I have. And I, I always hope that whether it's my drinking, which, you know, then I was able to get out of, if that can inspire someone, or if it's my journey to, uh, this new thing of, of endurance running, um, you know, I, I feel so blessed that I can have an impact on other folks. And I, I'm just, I can't believe that of all the people in the world, Zach, that uh, I have inspired you to get me on your show. I mean, that's a real honor. I'm really grateful that uh, you've invited me. This is real quite cool.
0: Oh yeah, I mean, there's no question that the the inspiration is like 98% one way right now. It's all coming from your microphone to my ears, Um, (laughs) so I'm listening to your story and I'm saying, man, I didn't do the Spartan World Championships this year, and now I feel really guilty about it because that's only like 15 miles. Yes, it's you know, was it 10,000 feet elevation and there's 25 or 30 obstacles and there's barbed wire and such. But um, now I listen to your story and I'm like, why I could have done that, right? (laughs) Um, So yes, your story is really inspiring, and now. I hope you know that you, the journey you've been through, whether you know, it was difficult, impossible, not impossible, other people are going to listen to it and it can make actual changes in their lives and then it can start to snowball for others. So that's, that's really why I wanted to do this more than anything. Um, so I'm glad that we were able to, to share this time together and get your story out there. Yeah, well, thanks again. Thank you so much for investing both your time and energy listening to today's show.